0: Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode six of Your Healing Nature, a weekly podcast about how Black, Indigenous people of color are reclaiming the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Bessa, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Richard D. Garcia. Richard is co-founder and executive director of Alma Backyard Farms. In this episode, he shares his root story, his family connection to the outdoors, fulfilling his calling via urban agriculture, how Alma Backyard Farms is addressing trauma and bringing community healing, and so much more. And just a quick FYI, Richard was on location at the farm during the recording of this episode. So you'll hear human and non-human kin in the background. Enjoy. I'm so excited to be in conversation today with Richard D. Garcia, co-founder and executive director of Alma Backyard Farms. Through environmental stewardship and experiential education, Alma empowers youth from disinvested communities and formerly incarcerated people through their urban agriculture job training program, youth education workshops, and their farm stand social enterprise. Richard's passion to grow food comes from a long line of Filipino farmers. A Los Angeles native, Richard lives to see that no life or land is wasted in the city of angels. Richard studied at St. John's Seminary College and has extensive experience in pastoral ministry inside juvenile halls and prisons. As a pastoral minister, youth advocate, and urban farmer, Richard knows how growing food is a transformative way of bringing people together. Since completing a master's degree in pastoral theology at Loyola Marymount University, Richard incorporates principles of restorative justice into urban farming. Through this innovative work, Richard teaches urban farmers to create beautiful landscapes, install raised beds, and grow food. Welcome to the podcast, Richard.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Richard D. Garcia, in partnership with his co-founder, Erica Cuellar, have devoted their lives to repurposing land, reclaiming lives, and reimagining community. They rethink the outside, the outdoors, in highly innovative ways. Their work amplifies the healing power of urban agriculture as they take a stand on issues like food justice and a broken criminal justice system. For Richard, the foundation of his desire to serve the L.A. community came from Father Greg Boyle, a man who in the mid-1980s arrived at Dolores Mission Church in Boyle Heights to become the youngest pastor in the history of the diocese. At the time, Los Angeles was the gang capital of the world, and the region had eight active gangs. Father Boyle spent much of his time in what he calls shuttle diplomacy, riding his bike from barrio to barrio, securing signed truces, ceasefires, and peace treaties. This was his experience of the outdoors, as well as that of his parishioners. By 1988, he would give birth to Homeboy Industries, an organization that provides hope, Training and support to formerly gang-involved and previously incarcerated people. Years later, Father Boyle would be invited to preside over service at Loyola High School. This is where Richard's root story begins.
1: So so the root story, and and that would be you know starting with I think a little of my story first, right, and then and then how how that links to other people. The you know you, you mentioned desire, you know my desire to to be of service if you will, um, for lack of of better terminology, or or rather maybe to to accompany people along the way, that desire is, I I would say, was ignited with having heard and witnessed the work of Father Greg Boyle when I was in high school. Father Greg's the the founder of Homeboy Industries. And when I was in high school, Father Greg presided over over a service, over liturgy, and I remember the, um, the scripture passage being read, and we were in Xavier Hall, which is an auditorium of about a, with about a thousand students in it. But I felt as if I was the only person there when I heard this passage read. And I remember the line, you are my beloved son. And my heart beat and raced so fast when I was read that I said to myself as a, as a 17 year old, I, I want to be like this guy, whoever is here at the altar. I want to be like this guy, because something was stirred inside of me. So I think it's, it's all my backyard farms is, is rooted in an experience where, where the heart starts to beat faster and where, where energy starts to flow from this deeper place. Uh, and so that carried me through 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 high school and then eventually off into, like you mentioned in the bio, to the seminary to pursue priesthood. For me, it was logical if I wanted to be of, of, of committed service and, and express a commitment of accompanying people, it would be through, through that life, that vocation. Um, and I was fortunate enough to meet very good mentors along the way who helped to shape to shape me to, to be responsive um, and to share in a response and in the work of, of what Alma is today. So like, um, so along that path, another moment of, of where my heart was beating faster and faster was when I, when I ended up living with the Jesuit community in, in, in Boyle Heights. And so I, I had the, um, the real blessing and gift of, of living alongside um, this religious community that included Father Greg, and I worked at Homeboy Industries for for, for a time, and I lived with other mentors like uh, a Jesuit priest named Mike Kennedy. And and in this community, uh, I was taught to to be vulnerable, and and th- these are principles that I'm rooted in that have, have guided Alma and its development. And and I haven't done this alone, of course. I've I have um, partners with with. Uh, my co-founder Erica Cuellar. Um but we we share these these uh, principles, and so it's it's essentially rooted in in the space of having experienced for myself being loved, and I think from that uh, emanates the desire to accompany people um, or to reflect to them that that experience, and I think it's it's reflecting to people that the experience of of this. Um, the reality of, of their dignity. And because that, that that was something I experienced, I think it became something that I could reflect. Alma could reflect to others. So um, that's personally where, where this comes from. And then having felt love, making a commitment to accompany people, I started pastoral work with juveniles and people incarcerated. And inside the confinement, was the opportunity to also listen to listen to words that 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 rang true like you are my beloved son these words were you know i want to go back home and i want to give back and i i would listen to this with with and i think this was when when folks who were incarcerated would express themselves in in real honesty of wanting to go home and wanting to make a contribution to other people's lives to flip the narrative on its head that that insofar as we would witness you know their own redemption in a way, where they no longer would would do harm or 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 acts of, of violence or engage in, in, in criminal activity, but engage in activity that's that's redeeming, that's helping, that's that's healing. So those experiences in juvenile hall and and um, and in prison started to to set more roots into into this I would say, into this fertile ground where I, I then was able to, um, along with my colleagues, discern more what what we can do. And it was in a particular experience of of, um, of tending a small garden when I was at Homegirl Cafe. So it's a story of Sarah where, and you you may have heard this story, but it was one where we were tending a few garden plots. We called them mini farms um, in any available space that we had access to in Boyle Heights in East LA. And this particular plot was um, by Dolores Mission Church. It was um, in the parking lot and there was some um, space where we had um, some raised beds. And I remember us driving down the street and Sarah was really quiet. The sort of quiet that will make you pause and ask, you know, why so quiet? And so I, I asked Sarah as we were driving and we finally pulled up to where we were going to plant um, and do some garden work and farm work. And I asked her, um, you know, you're you're pretty quiet. And she then made the remark to me that the last time she was down that road was when she was with some of her homies and they were looking out to do a drive-by shooting. She was tripping out that she was now in that same place But instead of driving down that street with the intention of taking life, she was driving down that street with the intention of planting new life. And so oftentimes, I think stories like that, it's what roots Alma, because we know of the power that urban agriculture, working with the dirt, working under the sun, engaging in, in work that involves other very vulnerable um, living things like plants leads to transformation. And so, you know, it's, it's not always the easiest thing to, to hear those stories if we get too caught up in busyness, right? Um, so sometimes I think it's a moment of having to, to step back. And you have to do this often when you, when you plant. You have to kind of step back to see, you know whether you're planting in a straight line or um, you plan correctly so you have to kind of take a step back and and the thing with urban agriculture too is that there are a lot of parallels between growing developing having to prune back those things that keep us from growth Um, so there are a lot of parallels where the act of urban farming where the plants become our teachers you know so there so there are a lot of parallels between the plants growing and our growth these parallels
0: between plants and people started to play out in Richard's own life in addition to doing pastoral work with juveniles and incarcerated individuals he was asked to serve as a youth minister at an after school program As he interacted with youth, he started pruning back parts of his identity that no longer served him. He started to rethink what a priesthood could look like outside of the traditional framework. Richard continues to share with us why he decided to redirect his life, how this decision intersected with his Filipino-American identity, and how he made this decision from a place of freedom.
1: I I never got ordained. I, I graduated from the college seminary, studied philosophy and English, and then when I, when I, um, was in discernment with the Jesuit community, I didn't end up pursuing the, the, the more advanced formation, which would lead to, you know, professing vows and then to ordination. So I, I didn't get ordained. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll share this with you. I, you know, who knows who's going to ever hear this, but I started, um, so, so when I was living with the religious community, there was, a there was like evening prayer and like um, there was an evening where you, you you shared, um, it was like a group, group examine where you're sharing um, it's faith sharing essentially, right? Like, you know, your experience of God throughout the week, whatever. And then, so, you know, there was a pattern set where I started to miss these things and I was late, you know? Okay. So that, that's, that's already showing my like lack of, of interest right um and then it would be like i just wasn't at that house much because i was um i was serving as a youth minister and and an after school program director whatever you want to call it so i was working with young people and and i would opt to just stay late in the neighborhood playing basketball then make these other commitments. And then I think it was, it was more, I was like falling in love with being with the youngsters more than I was with being with the, the religious community. And then there's all, also the other layers, you know, I'm Filipino American. And so my Filipino background, it's, it's, it's not easy, you know, to, to then have to explain that, that I'm not, I'm I'm opting to not pursue priesthood. Reason being is, you know, there's only only so many um, educational um, endeavors that are worthwhile for Filipino moms that include something in the medical field. You know, you're either like pursuing nursing or you're a doctor or, you know, you're a priest or a lawyer. Um, And so like everything else is like, you know, of what value or significance? I don't know. And I didn't feel obliged to explain myself because the gift that I received from having lived and worked with with good mentors and and this Jesuit community was that, you know, our our choices have to be made from a place of real freedom. You know, I I had just mentioned this to a group that visited the farm in Compton last week that, you know, oftentimes when we wonder whether or not we're going in the right direction, you know, there's a question of, are you growing in faith, hope and love? And, and if it is a case that you, in my case, having experienced that I was uh, an experience of growth and faith, a growth in hope and a growth in love, and and that was more spending time with, with the youth and people in the neighborhood, then that was helpful to my discernment of where to be. So I think, you know, because this is like, this conversation is is one where, where desire the word desire will will pepper throughout this this conversation because the desire for priesthood, it's not that it necessarily waned, but maybe the desire to give expression to the the priesthood that I believe I'm a part of is is one where it's fulfilled in 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 the work of urban agriculture and I you know like as 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 a person with theology background i could i could maybe articulate some of what i believe to be sacred about this work so yeah i didn't i didn't i didn't end up getting ordained and, and you know what i'm really glad i didn't yeah i i really am glad i didn't um, i don't i don't think at first my mom was very happy or family or other other people i knew in the seminary kind of like i mean it made them pause And I I really do think everyone should choose from a place of real freedom for for whatever, whatever you're going to do.
0: Richard's family connection to agriculture is a source of pride. The history of the Filipino diaspora to the United States and other parts of the world is complicated, to say the least. As you listen to Richard, he briefly touches on the colonization of the Philippines and the Filipino presence in Guam. From 1898 to 1946, the Philippines was colonized by the United States. After 48 years of colonization, the Philippines gained its independence, but was left in economic depression, and consequently, high unemployment rates led to labor migration. This is how Richard's grandfather found himself in Guam working in sugarcane. Meanwhile, Richard's father found himself traveling throughout the United States alongside Mexican and Mexican-American workers, earning a living based on the harvest. Throughout Richard's life, his parents would share stories of this family labor history, which shaped his awareness and relationship with the land. He goes on to tell us more.
1: Yeah, so there's, there's a thing my mom would always tell me growing up. She'd say, you know, you, you want wanted to... Be this big tree one day so that you could provide shade to many, right? Okay, she would say that to me growing up. But but, okay, so from my dad's side, my dad's dad. So my grandpa worked in Guam sugarcane farming. And that was the means to provide for family in the Philippines. And this is a complex history because it's stuff that's not probably talked about. And I don't know a whole lot of it other than you know like the philippines was once part of the us right so you know filipinos were were imported farm workers and we've made a contribution throughout california so my 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 dad's side of the family is very much a part of that and probably not not explicitly saying you know you know we did this um, because it was it was simply to to earn a living I don't know if it's necessarily the case that my dad knew all of the political implications with, you know, the organizing that happened between Mexicans and Filipinos, but he, he was around that, that, that. Um, so he would tell me stories of, of pruning grapes and Lodi and, you know, going to the place where, where work is. So they would, you know, a bunch of, um, Family members would, would travel to to Florida to pick lettuce or wherever the the, the harvest uh, was 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 necessary. But this is this is happening because it's just what you do to live. So I'd hear stories like that, and then for on, on the side of my mother, you know, plants was always a a way to soothe her. Um, she was a nurse who worked in the emergency room in Kaiser West LA, and she did a lot of um, Per deem shifts. So she, she worked hard. And so these are things I witnessed. But the soothing thing of coming home to water plants for my mom was, was uh, part of her routine. It was all, almost her routine that would help her decompress from you know, a 12-hour shift, sometimes 16 hours. So this was me witnessing how my parents interacted with, with, with land, and with food, and then food became the means to connect me to make sure I didn't forget, you know, where we're from, right? So um, you have reminders of where you're from, with what's growing in the front yard or the backyard. If it's um, a morinda tree, or you know, my parents call it marungay. If it's something like that, or bitter melon, hang palaya. If they if they would tell me the stories through the plants, you know, and oftentimes it would be like. You know, if you're feeling sick, you know, put this in the soup. Um, if you have a bump on your head, pound this, and it'll reduce the swelling. If you have some acne, you could pound some bitter melon leaves and then um, apply some of that juice on, on onto your skin. I mean, so there's always kind of, you know, the, the remedy. Um, but, then, but then it would be a, a story that would be told with, like, you know, your grandma would do this. You know, I didn't. I didn't have the chance to meet the my grandma, on my, my mom's side, and I didn't really grow up with my grandparents. But this is this is what a way my 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 parents would connect heritage. So I think, I think maybe the you know the the plants being present helped tell the story of our of our relationship to the land and, and what it does for us. So the, the, those those were the stories I'd hear, listen to, and it, that helped to to shape my awareness. And I think plant, you know, not to sound corny, but like plant seeds about, you know, what my relationship is with, with the land.
0: A couple of times throughout the interview, Richard reiterates to me that he and Erica stand on the shoulders of those that came before them. And as I listened back, I clearly heard how political, social and cultural history converge in the story of Alma Backyard Farms. Richard mentions labor organizing that happened between Filipino and Mexican farm workers in the 1960s. Some of you may not remember this, but it was a Filipino organizer by the name of Larry Itliong who organized the Delano Grape Strike. More than 2,000 Filipino farmworkers walked off the vineyards of Delano, demanding fair wages and the right to unionize. Shortly after, Itliong approached Cesar Chavez to invite Mexican farmworkers to stand in solidarity and join the strike. This partnership is what led to the creation of the United Farm Workers. And although this is a different generation and a different cause, Richard and Erica represent the continuation of the solidarity between Filipino and Mexican-American agricultural workers, but this time in the urban space of Los Angeles and in the fight for food justice and a broken criminal justice system, all issues that exist in our own backyards. And it's not lost upon me how, through Alma Backyard Farms, Richard continues his family tradition of telling stories through his relationship with the plants that grow in his own backyard. Recent initiatives like Rethink Outside, which was launched by the Blue Sky Funders Forum, have asked us to consider getting outdoors, whether that be planting an urban farm in our yard or taking a walk around the neighborhood driving home the point that enjoying the benefits of the outdoors is a basic human right. Historically, that has been a challenging call to action for Black, Indigenous people of color. Oftentimes, a postal code will determine the dignity and level of safety afforded to our communities and the land we reside on. To better understand the intervention that Alma Backyard Farms is making, specifically within the city of Compton, we have to think about it in the larger context of Compton's history. In the early to mid 20th century, the cities of Compton and Watts were once thriving agricultural centers. At one point, Los Angeles was even considered the largest farming county in the nation. And as California transitioned to market the land from being a place of agriculture to a place of housing development and perfect health, people started to migrate in droves. In a recent NPR series, American Democracy, It was reported that by 1950, one-fifth of 1% of Compton's entire population was non-white. And by the 1960s, 40% of the city was Black, which is now, by the way, 68% Latinx. This was due to a number of structural factors, such as discriminatory housing practices, which set the trajectory for a devaluing of the land and the Black community, along with the shift from an all-white population to majority Black, came a lower tax base, rising unemployment, escalating crime, police violence and a disinvestment in schools and recreational facilities. The city of Compton has a long, multi-layered history of collective trauma. So when I ask Richard how Alma Backyard Farms is reclaiming and or reimagining the outdoors to heal individual and collective trauma, he starts by telling us about the urban ruins of Los Angeles.
1: I think there is, there is a level of violence with just the distance of distancing yourself from the reality of space. I think there is, I think you're harming yourself when you disconnect and you distance yourself from the space. Uh, you know, I remember witnessing, you know, the riots in 92. I was in sixth grade, okay? And, you know, my mom had had, had her uh, night shifts and I remember him, her making a remark like there wasn't much traffic because, um, you know, there was a there was a I guess it was called a lockdown or there was curfew. We speak oftentimes of, of like the 92 riots and, and um, you know, it was the first time uh, someone was videotaping and then they, this thing goes public. Right. And what I wanted to mention was, you know, I, I had a recent conversation about the 92 riots and how some places have not ever really recovered and so there are kind of like the ruins but you see these businesses that that were boarded up and probably remain boarded up and then there, there are communities where the development was even further reversed or further declined or and and in, in regards to you know collective trauma We've we've disconnected ourselves from from the things that may just bring us healing if we meet it head on. So if there's if, what I mean by that is if if there is if land has been vacant and and in some relation to what I was talking about the riots there are just these vacant buildings and there's just there's some land that's just not messed with anymore. You know how however whatever the ownership is or whether or not it's deemed not a place where you really want to invest time and energy. I mean, that's part of the harm too, when, when, when you could say, I'm not really interested in that. It's almost as if you've, you've taken away the, the element of dignity to that space because it's not worth our time. That being said, um, you know Alma in, in, in repurposing land, we'll start with land, but I felt more than ever now that the land invites us more so than us having this dominion over like, let's change this up. I think the land start is, you know, if we listen close enough, the land seems to be the space that's inviting us. But but then to work together with the land to create a space where, where community could blossom and grow. You know, like I was telling Erica today that we have the real fortune of actually doing something that, that seems to be working because I really haven't seen here in Los Angeles at least an urban farm setting that actually will grow enough to then distribute its produce on site and then generate a sort of following where people rediscover the very space they're living in in a new way. So I I have had the fortune over the last few months since August since we've been starting up the farm stand to witness that. Now that's repurposing land, taking what seems to be unproductive, but you're also unlocking the nutrient dense land. You know, it's as if we're unlocking stuff that's already been there. And I think it, it parallels the, the, the story with the people where when we reclaiming lives, we're unlocking potential where um, people grow in their sense of belonging. And, and particularly for folks who have experienced incarceration, we're helping to, to shape and shed light on the other dimension of them being folks who, are, who give back. Um, so in a way we're, we're, we're undoing you know, the longstanding notion that people who have committed crimes um, can't change. Uh, instead, we've, we've created a, a scenario that exhibits to people that they're not only capable, that, that change is possible, but it is worth our time to engage with folks who have who have done that. So I think I think like the healing that we do is 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 the work of dignifying space and persons. You know, I think that's part of the work we're doing of restoration. So in a way, you know, it's really honestly, it's nothing new. What we do is nothing new. I think we just do it with the intention of, of doing it wholeheartedly. It's key for me to say that because, you know, the people who have, who have been most exemplary of, of, of how to put your entire being into change and into growth are the folks who have, who have done well post-incarceration and who have made a commitment to do well. So that, that I think with lives and land, that's, that's part of our, our, and if anything, look, I always tell this to college students because we've actually had a number of visitors. I'm, I'm a firm believer, at least in putting this message out there, especially amongst people who are still maybe more impressionable, like young people, college students, high schoolers, that, you know, theory is born out of practice. And so you got to do it and then you could talk about it because I think there's, the, 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 the beauty of, of of the process of healing is you just kind of take a dive into it and and let it happen to you. And I think when you're in the space of the farm and you're in the space of community, it starts happening to you as you you make yourself vulnerable to that reality.
0: Richard is a modest person. And as we continue, I expressed to him that I don't know of any organization who does this type of restorative work in the way that Alma is doing it. Through Alma's urban agriculture job training program, formerly incarcerated individuals are caretaking their community as they become open and vulnerable to the process of planting new life, growing, harvesting, and then selling the organic nutrient-dense foods back to the community they've harmed. Additionally, at the height of the pandemic, the Yama team was on the front lines providing 250 free grocery kits bi-weekly, further demonstrating their commitment to the community. And so Richard responds.
1: Hmm. You know, maybe there is some level of innovation just here and now, but I think um, you know, what's 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 been a key thing is there's there's this thread. You know, from me just naming, you know, the more you know, consciously aware scenarios in high school, then in college, then post college. But part of part of my my hope in in sharing that with you is is to let you know that we really do stand on on shoulders of of people who have done something very similar before us. Definitely true, and I think it has to be translated for the given moment. And I think maybe we're doing a decent a decent job of translating it for the, for the present moment. I do, I and I do think, you know, because maybe this, this may seem like a little put off-ish when, when, you know, we're thinking about kind of a competitive mindset to do something. Well, you, you, you want to excel in it. And I tell people this, and I, I mean, I'm sharing this with you, but you know, I've, I've come across enough posts where, where Muhammad Ali was, was known as the people's champ. He was a champ for the people and, and there were things he was advocating for I would like for Alma to be known as the people's Farm be, because it, there, there's more to it than just than just you know growing growing the food.
0: There's definitely more to Alma than simply growing food. In many ways, Alma is already the people's farm. The Compton Farm location, for instance, is located on land that is connected to St. Albert the Great Elementary School and Catholic Church. As a result of ALMA's rooted partnerships with these institutions, there's a certain level of trust that Richard and his team have developed with the community. Throughout the week, children walk to the farm and learn science via plants and music while enjoying healthy snacks. The farm has also helped the community to discover their ancestral foodways and explore their cultural identities. Richard shared with me that a student's grandmother stopped by the farm one day to drop off mustard seeds and longhorn okra that her brother mailed from Louisiana, stating, quote, I know what people around here want to eat. Alma is also providing a safe space for local children, as well as those of neighboring cities, to connect with nature in meaningful ways through interactive workshops at their farm stand Sundays. Richard shares with us how Alma is hoping to impact future generations through their youth development program.
1: So Eric and I are both graduates of Loyola Marymount University, and we've had a number of good relationships um, from from having that background. We're working now with Dr. Carolyn Viviano. She's uh, one of the professors there, and she's incorporating student teachers in helping us push and develop a curriculum that's particularly ALMA's with some STEAM learning, right? And that's... So there's some piloting there right with that regard in in terms of working with with local elementary school we're going to start our workshops with with children and we're going to have to make it developmentally appropriate so um, you know particular age groups group together and this may involve parents and and we're gonna we're gonna incorporate these um children's workshops at the farm on the on the sunday platforms of our farm stand we're working with one of our newest team members has has a background in in, in uh, you know child development and mental health, and so you know you're, you're asking me this as we're developing it, and then we're going to go back to the drawing board. So we're gonna, you know, I'm, this probably drives some people crazy, but I will say let's let's start off with one concretely, and then and then maybe we'll do three. And then, then we scale like that because it gives us some time to process how that's going. I mentioned Dr. Viviana in the beginning because we had mentioned to her, and this was, this is kind of where I think, like you know, you, you have the chit chat that's theoretical, where people are like, oh, there are curriculums for kids, and so we want to piggyback on that and and utilize that if it if it's appropriate and if it makes sense given our. There are things probably of real value that we could pull from that. But one thing that Dr. Viviano said when we met with her to, to to discuss this was, "There's something particularly Alma," and and we didn't want to say that because I guess speaking to other folks, they're going to always tell us there's there's curriculum out there, and to hear it from her was very affirming because we 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 thought so. We we just. It's kind of like when I finally read braiding sweetgrass. I thought I was kind of crazy when I'd be like, you know, the plants are the things telling us what to do, man. I don't know why people want to geek out on stuff that's not even like, you know, tried and tested. Anyway, that being said, I think it was uh, it's you know Dr. Viviano's kind of vote of confidence that there is something particularly Alma, and and I think that's why I think people in their in in whatever scenario they're they're in with kids. They're going to develop it for that particular setting, maybe sharing certain things, but it's going to be born out of the particular circumstance. So to make it robust, you know, I, I always say, you know, one day it'll be like the Children's Ecological Institute. But I do have dreams that this, this space actually, it builds that sense of learning, that sense of discipline, that sense of love for, and and, and, and here's the thing. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this with you, because if, if you, you want to kind of know a little bit of our pedagogy, yeah, I do care about STEAM. I do care about the sort of technical lessons that, that kids could get from the farm. But I think our job, and this is probably from my pastoral days of working with youth and even coaching basketball, and this is the gift of another mentor who was like a spiritual guide for me. You know, before the season started, when I was coaching these kids in in eighth grade basketball, he said to me, this is an old priest. Okay, he says to me, you got to get rid of your ego because it's not about winning. Okay, and and he he makes this clear to me and I'm like, damn, you know, we've been working hard. I do want to win games. And so like it was a sleepless night before the season started. And this is crazy because this is like eighth grade basketball. Right. Um, but there's so many lessons in this. And so I remember tossing and turning and I was like, you know what? It ain't about me. It's not about winning. It's about the kids loving the game. And so that this becomes a wealth of experience that they could take with them. So like it became my point to say, let's just have fun and love this game. Okay. That being said, we didn't lose at all in the season. Okay. But that's not my point. The point is this, um, the point is this that with, with kids and the farm, I think our job is to really like like for the, the experience that, experiences that I've had that have been affected is really to, to encourage a love for the farm, a love for urban ag, a love for plants and the, the gifts that plants give us, an interest and real gratitude for what the earth could provide, those are the lessons that could be taught, you know, through all of those other things, through the sciences, through, through the technology, through composting, like whatever lesson it is, our real aim is to help children develop a love for the space outdoors. Um, and I think if, if we get towards that, then I feel like more of our job is accomplished.
0: As we come to a close, I ask Richard, how do you experience the sacred and find ancestral guidance in your day-to-day life?
1: I pray. I don't know if you've ever driven past the sign on the 10 freeway. It's, It's the 10 heading east when you're passing downtown. I would always read this sign the wrong way because I just kind of catch a glimpse of it. And the sign reads, a scared world needs a fearless church. And I I never read it correctly, right? And then I always read a sacred um, world needs a fearless church. And I was like, yeah, that that makes sense. And then one day I saw it, I was like, my point is if you reverse two letters, you know, the C and the A, it's a world of difference between scared and sacred. And so I think for me to, to take some time to, to pray, it helps me to, to check and balance whether or not I'm reversing the order of those words as I move through the day. If, I, if I'm if i looking through a perspective of scared or if I'm looking through a perspective of sacred. I grew up in a, in a very devout Filipino Catholic family and it doesn't mean I'm as you know like like that, but then I think my mom planted that seed, and I do appreciate her for it because it's been quite a heuristic tool for me to navigate through life. Um, ancestral guidance, you know, I'll speak to. I mean, this is, this may sound crazy, but I so I knew my my grandfather to be a carpenter, so I'll I'll talk to him when I'm doing carpentry. I know of my grandmother to be an entrepreneur. My mom would always say, you know, she would take what she was growing and sell it. If someone didn't have the means, she would give it to them. And so in terms of ancestral guidance, I think that's present in how we offer what we grow. So, I But those conversations are ongoing. And sometimes I complain to my grandparents, even if I didn't really have much of a relationship with them. I'll just complain to them about my parents today.
0: (laughs) Richard and I were unable to get through the fun five due to time constraints. So instead I ask him, if he had to choose one thing that makes Alma special, what would that
1: be? I think everyone on our crew, and I think the ones who've been around and have stuck around and have been committed, I know them to to give of their heart. And I think that, you know what? I really believe that's actually what draws people to the farm. Because we could all say like, wow, you know, the bananas are in such good order. But I know that behind that is like Mondo's energy. Like that's what's behind it that no one sees. And, And it's not that, oh, he did an excellent job of putting things in order, no he's built an excellent, excellent relationship with the banana plants. That's what's happened. So you're, you're, you're experiencing this relationship emanate. So if you, you know, come in contact with the plants, I think they are the way they are because of our relationship with them, you know? And, and I know that everyone ends up asking the questions about, and that matters, you know, like what's in the soil, how often do you water, but, the answers to those questions really take root in the relationship the plants have with us and us with them.
0: So where can our listeners find you and how can they be of service to you and the work that you're doing?
1: Uh, listeners could, could follow us on, on, on Instagram at Alma Backyard Farms. They could, um, Find out more of what we're doing if they were to visit us at the farm on a on a farm stand Sunday, whether it be Compton or San Pedro. And I think if if, if you want to get involved, um, I, I think a visit is always the first place to start.
0: What parting words would you like to share with the listeners to support them in learning, unlearning, and or relearning how to center healing in their lives?
1: I you know it's 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 difficult to have a sense of gratitude. For even difficult things, you know, as I as I grow older, I think um, you know, there's a moment where I could be grateful of of kind of a hard moment, and and I think that happens when you 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 try to really extract the lesson from it. If if there's any parting words, it's it's a uh, for me to you know for even anyone to take the time to listen to me yap, you know, I'm grateful. Um, but I, I, I just want people to have a really deep sense and be in this well of gratitude.
0: As we come to a close, I'm really reminded of an LMU article where you were quoted as saying that what happens at Almad's church. And I thought a lot about a story that you had shared in an interview about an individual, I think his name was Adolfo, who felt like he had finally returned home after witnessing um, the school children enjoying the landscape that he had helped to plant. Um, And I think it was at the Compton farm location, if I'm not mistaken. And when I sat with that story, and as I've listened to and read so much about Alma Backyard Farms, I thought of the word ceremony.
1: Mm.
0: Because I think that what happens at Alma is ceremony. So I couldn't think of a better way to close this than to read a passage from a book that we both admire, Braiding Sweetgrass, Mm. that immediately reminded me of the work being done at Alma. And... She writes and this was her writing in um, she recalls the offering of the first coffee that her father would make to the soil. And she says ceremonies, large and small, have the power to focus attention to a way of living awake in the world, the visible became invisible merging with the soil. It may have been a secondhand ceremony, but even through my confusion, I recognize that the church that the earth (laughs) drink it up as if it were right, the land knows you, even when you are lost. Ceremony is a vehicle for belonging to a family, to a people, and to the land. That, I think, is the power of ceremony. It marries the mundane to the sacred. What else can you offer the earth, which has everything? What else can you give but something of yourself? A homemade ceremony, a ceremony that makes a home. And if the audience has listened intently to your words, and they will understand why ceremony is the word that I think of when I visit Alma and all I can do is strongly encourage people to visit and to experience it for themselves. Because I do think that there is a way in which Alma, no pun intended, is inviting us to live another way in this world, awake, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to thank you for everything that you do for the LA community. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: After my time with Richard, I thought a lot about his belief that our choices have to be made from a place of real freedom, a freedom rooted in the sacred. To heal ourselves as well as our communities, it requires that we make a number of choices that often cause anxiety and agony as we think about the consequences of those choices. We may fear the unknown, the criticism, the potential regrets, the individuals and or communities we may hurt or lose along the way. When making choices, how do we shift our mindset from an energy of scared to an energy of sacred? So as we approach a new year, I ask you to consider gifting yourself the gift of freedom to make choices that are life-affirming and healing for you. As you redirect one or all areas of your life, whether that be leaving a vocation, a relationship, or a toxic environment, Richard and I invite you to remember that we have much to learn from our plant kin. Many times, making a choice is like pruning back parts of ourselves that no longer serve us. It is the only way to grow and step into our wholeness. Had Richard not left the seminary, we probably wouldn't have i Backyard Farms in its present form. So what is waiting to emanate from you? And lastly, as you take time to integrate these new choices into your life, ask yourself, am I growing in hope? Am I growing in faith? Am I growing in love? Rest assured, the answers will come. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for sticking with us through the entire episode. To follow the amazing work being done at Anma Backyard Farms, please follow them on Instagram at Anma Backyard Farms. To increase the organization's impact, you can also become a volunteer and/or donate. Visit their website AnmaBackyardFarms.com to learn more. And lastly, please remember to visit their farm stand Sundays as all proceeds are used to fund their free youth programs. In the show notes, you will find books and other resources that were used in this episode. To remain connected, please follow me on Instagram at underscore your healing nature, or email me at info at your healing com. Lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore, BIPOC community, if there's a topic, theme, or guest you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma in the outdoors, or rethinking the outdoors, please let me know. Mil gracias. Until next time, keep walking in sunshine.